young people have the power to change their own lives and to change the society for the future. And we have the privilege to help them to be ready to do that. Change is always possible. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to episode 90 of Purposely with Quorum CEO, Carol Hondon. Quorum is the oldest children's charity in the world. This episode is special for me because Carol was my boss at the Princess Trust back in the day. I know her well. She's a phenomenal brain, a great leader, and a wonderful human being. Enjoy this episode, and don't forget to share with friends, family. If you get a chance to leave a review, it really matters to getting the message out there. Enjoy this episode. Carol Hondon, welcome to the Purposely Podcast. Hello, Mark. You are the CEO of the oldest children's charity or the oldest known children's charity in the world, Quorum. What's its vision? What's its mission? Well, Quorum exists to create better chances for children. And my vision is that Quorum shall be the institute for the future of children. So since Thomas Quorum created this, the first children's charity or the first children's charity dedicated to children, uh, rather than doing charitable works through other institutions, we have been trying to change the odds for children who have them stacked against them in life. You stretch across the UK now, don't you? But it's very much headquartered in London? Yes, that's right. I mean, originally we were established on the same site, uh, just south of King's Cross in 1739. But Quorum helps children across the UK and indeed across the world through our legal systems consultancy. So we worked with 29 countries last year, helping governments and agencies to ensure that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child can be activated in reality. And you've got a museum on site which goes plays some history back. So 1739 is a phenomenal long time ago. But tell us a bit more about the start of it. Thomas Coram was born in Lyme Regis and lost his mother at the age of two and went to sea at the age of 11, uh, after which he was apprenticed as a shipwright. And he then travelled to the very early times of the United States and established a shipyard. But upon completing his work with that, he fell out rather with the people of Boston um, because he was very progressive in his views um, and a practicing Anglican. And he returned to England, to London, then the largest city in the world, and was appalled at what he found, which was the bodies of infants dying and littering the streets. He had no children himself, but he campaigned for 17 years to achieve a royal charter to create what was then called the Foundling Hospital. And that was therefore the birth of children's social care. So Thomas Coram was a very remarkable man out of his time and what a legacy he has left. Phenomenal. And, and prior to that, n- no real welfare state as, as we know it now, or there was certainly not groups of people looking after young people? That's absolutely right. What we have to remember is what it was like in the early 18th century. There was no state support. There were parishes. uh, There were workhouses. uh, There were some church schools. But if you were poor and if you were illegitimate, 
then life was profoundly challenging. And indeed, there was no uh, modern understanding of disease and very limited ways to help people. So in the general population at that time, seven out of 10 children were dead by the age of five. And in a workhouse, that number was nine out of 10. So it was an extraordinarily challenging times, although I think it's salutary to remember how many young lives are still unnecessarily lost across the world. Yeah, fast forward to now, and there is a welfare state, and there are other people helping young people or children. Um, how has the work changed, and, and what are the issues you're facing at the moment? Well, I think the, the work has changed progressively over time with the establishment of the welfare state, particularly since 1948 and the Education Act. And so actually in 1954, the governors of Coram changed their name from the Foundling Hospital and shifted entirely the work so that instead of providing residential care and support for children who were abandoned or handed over uh, to our care for other reasons, those responsibilities for statutory child protection and for support of, of children in desperate circumstances did move to local authorities in the UK. So Coram's work became much more around finding those loving homes that children needed in foster care and adoption, championing their rights to make sure that they uh, receive the entitlements they need and specifically in the timescale of the child, and building children's resilience for the future that they would face, getting their voices heard, giving them a chance to shine, and ensuring that they have skills for life. So Quorum today reaches more than a million children in the UK with legal information and advice, education and curriculum programs, as well as our rights and direct placement work. The challenges that we face are significant at this time in the face of recession. In the UK today, there are more children uh, presenting to the care system in need than ever before. And these trends are being driven by, uh, uh, and certainly amplified by poverty uh, and by mobility. And, and also long-standing issues uh, to do with parental use of drugs and alcohol, for example. And the other big challenge, and perhaps unique about Quorum, really, is that we consider it absolutely unacceptable in a modern state that children in one place can have such different chances in life than another place, despite the regulation that surrounds the services. Just to give you an example, uh, your, your chances of, of being adopted might be seven times higher in one location than another. And the inconsistency of services, as well as the overall shortfalls in services, uh, need to be tackled. Too many children are unable to access the mental health services they need and the resources allocated to them as a proportion of GDP and of the population are too small. So we are not going to be packing up anytime soon. We are looking forward to the next decades. And Coram's specific role is that we do not only deliver services directly and work to change children's lives child by child, we also work to support 
and grow the capacity of the sector, both statutory and charity, that exists to support them and to build both policy and public attitudes and understanding to eventually create a society that really cares. So jumping right back to, you know, your childhood, and, and I really want to in, end up, you know, you've been at Quorum 15 years, you arrived there from the Prince's Trust, but before we do that, really take you back to your childhood. Um, t- is it true that you grew up on the sort of border of, of England and Wales, or you certainly went to school in Shrewsbury? What, what was your childhood like? Uh, I had a, a, a happy and lovely childhood with two loving parents. I went to the same school for 14 years. I have a lovely brother and, you know, always knew I was loved. And that's what we want for every child we work with. Continuity of care and support, encouragement, consistent education, and most of all, the loving home that every child needs. My father was uh, one of five brothers. His father died when he was a teenager, and he was an apprentice at Rolls-Royce. But, you know, he, he had known hardship. Uh, my mother was an only child who was brought up in Coventry during the Blitz. She had known hardship. So I guess that I have always been a driven individual who has always felt, like Thomas Coram, that it is a duty to do any good you can. And you yourself ended up in London, is that, is that right? Oh, yes. Um, I used to stand on our landing looking down the road. Uh, it's called the Roman Road, um, and it is, in fact, the A5 uh, road in, in England. And I used to look at that road and think, at the bottom, it's called Edgware Road in London, and that's where I'm going as quickly as possible. Because although Shrewsbury is an absolutely beautiful place, and I commend you to go there, it's a, a, a gorgeous medieval uh, town, the only things that were on were the things I was in. So in the orchestra or playing netball. And whilst that was all wonderful, I really wanted to become a professional uh, working in a vibrant and diverse city. And that's what I've done. And via um, East Anglia and doing a, um, a BA and then also um, a doctorate? Yes, that's right. I mean, I had a wonderful time at the University of East Anglia. And whilst I was studying there, I was helping my husband, as he is now, to run the first independent What's On magazine and then independent newspaper, so whilst I was studying. And I went on to study the plays of David Hare. And why did I do that? I never wanted to be an academic. I did that because I hadn't finished exploring and I didn't feel that I'd yet really found my level of intellectual challenge. And David Hare is a fascinating writer who has chronicled in drama the post-war history of Britain and asks fundamental questions about that history, identity, and the way in which society can be changed. But once I'd done the PhD, I was already established uh, working part-time in the university sector um, in London because I've always been committed to social mobility and meritocracy. And I worked for the Polytechnic, the original Polytechnic, established originally by Sir George Cayley as a center of development for technical skills, but then amplified by Quintin Hogg, who had started his journey teaching 
young people to read under the arches of Waterloo Station. Wonderful. And so your early career was was really focused on, you know, selling the mission. Would that be fair to say? The marketing of that, that mission? Yes, it would. I was the first public relations officer in the Polytechnic of Central London. The vice chancellor thought that was all rather odd. But he, you know, there was a recognition at the time of the importance of, of establishing identity and differentiation and also of increasing its access mission to reach, it always has reached students from a very broad base. Indeed, the organization was the first to develop a credit accumulation and transfer scheme that would recognize the accreditation of prior learning uh, and also had a no qualification entry access route. So it was a, a very vibrant and dynamic place with many, many part-time students. But yes, my job was to support the organization in developing its mission. I started as a public relations officer. I then acquired corporate communications, fundraising, marketing, development, inquiries, publishing, and was eventually the coordinator of the Coalition of Modern Universities when the polytechnics in the UK were granted university status. So that was a huge journey and one which, which was absolutely enjoyable and stimulating to be part of. Do you remember it being difficult convincing academics to be more commercial? Well, that's a really interesting question. Some of the academics, particularly the research professors in applied research, are extremely commercial to the extent that they think they should have their own logo type with their own name on it. So that was more of a, of a challenge was to develop the brand in such a way that all of the elements of the university felt a real ownership and, and co-purpose in it, whether they were engaged in the access route or whether they were the research professors. So I do remember a conversation with one absolutely um, inspiring leader of a center of microelectronic systems who was very worried about recruiting a diverse uh, population. And I remember saying to him, well, I won't tell you how to design a microchip and you won't tell me how to do marketing and we'll get along just splendidly, <laughs> which indeed we did. And so a short, <laughs> two or three years at the British Museum, you ended up joining the Prince's Trust in, a, in a, what could be deemed a commercial role. Tell us a bit about how that came about. Well, indeed, it is the case that I would say I am a social entrepreneur who has spent my life commercializing the public and charity sector commercializing as in ensuring that they are able to operate on good and sound commercial principles in order to fulfill their mission. The time at the British Museum was absolutely transformational in that the British Museum, the world's largest um, visitor attraction, or one of them with five and a half million visitors, I was the first director of marketing. And I remember asking the museum historian what we knew about our visitors. And she said that we had interviewed the visitors 15 years earlier. So the organization was an academic institution with a visitor attraction co combined with it. But it had marvelously developed a huge fundraising campaign and raised the largest ever sum of the time to transform a, a public museum to create the great court at the heart of the British Museum. And it was a phenomenal achievement to build that £100 million um, development inside the middle 
of the British Museum. And the only day we closed was the day the Queen came to open it. And it was my job to transform the organization's readiness to operate as a, on a different platform as a civic organization, as well as, of course, to support its great mission in heritage. Now, at the end of that time, I had been running all kinds of things. For example, working on the commercial development of our, our offer to the public through tours, uh, through catering, through filming, corporate events, as well as all of the exhibitions and visitor services. And with the opening of the Great Court, it was time really for moving on from there. And during the time that I had been working at the university and the British Museum, I was privileged to have two children, one of whom has very complex needs. He is autistic with learning difficulties and significant behavioral challenges. And we experienced profound difficulties in our family as a result of that, including multiple periods of, of permanent educational exclusion and, and so on. And I really just felt that if, if navigating those issues and services had almost destroyed our family, and I, I and my husband had had so many advantages in life, then I absolutely had to change things. So the Prince's Trust helps young people over 14 who have had a very difficult start in life, either in care or under educationally un underachieving or with a criminal record or long-term unemployed. And my feeling very strongly was that if organizations like the Prince's Trust weren't there for children and young people like my eldest son, then no one would be. Yeah. And I was delighted to be appointed as commercial director and was responsible for the income generation and the brand building of the Prince's Trust at, again, a moment of organizational transformation shortly after seven discrete trusts had been brought into one. And indeed, the first thing I had to do was to rebrand the organization um, to create that kind of coherence. And I'm delighted to see that that mark is still in use yeah. and the Prince's Trust is going from strength to strength. Absolutely, your legacy lives on. And and how old was your eldest son at that point? Had you managed to sort of get yourself together to be able to work full-time or did, did you always, were you always able to deal with home and work? Well, you don't have any choice but to deal with home and work throughout um, and particularly when you have a disabled child. I've always worked full-time. And th that has been possible partly because my husband, who also works full time, is freelance. So we were able to balance to some extent our, our working day. But what I would say to you is that if you really want to affect change, you just have to be tired. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the future for your son, did that, does that something that drove you on? Were you more, almost more concerned about his long term future than? The period you were in when he was, you know, who's young, young in age, because a lot of, a lot of young people with autism, their sort of post twenties is a really unknown factor. Well, that is certainly the case, and there are two things to say about that. There is a cycle to all families' experience in living with autism, and the first is the moment of diagnosis, which comes 
sometimes with a sense of relief that at least I know what it is and it isn't my fault, followed closely by grief for the life that isn't going to be as you thought it might, often followed by a loss of your family or friends network before you find a new type of network. And so throughout my period of doing this full-time work and caring for, for, for Freddie with my husband and my younger son, Joe, I have always served on the boards of other organizations. So for six years, I was chairing a learning disability charity, which coincided with uh, Freddie's early experience of being developmentally behind before he was diagnosed as autistic. I then had the privilege to be chair of the National Autistic Society for 10 years. And that really coincided with his developmental experience of both school exclusion and the navigation to adult services. And during lockdown, Freddie put on a huge amount of weight, which is also associated with medication. And we received a diagnosis of diabetes type 2. I now have the privilege to serve as the chair of Diabetes UK. And your incredible lived experience with Journey with Freddie, along with your skills that you've developed in your professional career, well done you for continuing to serve and, and yeah, delivering your... Thank you, Mark. I mean, really, it, I am a driven individual. It, it, I inherited it from my father. But I'm also greatly inspired by Barack Obama's words, which is, we are the people we've been waiting for. So if change is going to happen and society is going to be a better place. Now is the moment, and we are the people. Yeah, we need to act. Yeah. And headed to the Prince's Trust, you oversaw, uh, you know, a, a bringing together of sort of uh, a, a various groups of charities, phenomenally successful period with them. But being the, the boss, being the, the CEO, was that always going to come to you? Was that always something you wanted? You wanted yeah. to? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was always going to happen. I mean, I do believe that leaders are born and I just can't help it, really. So, you know, I just kind of always end up leading. Impatient? So whether it's the net. But um, no, I don't know whether it's that. I think it's something to do with, I am perhaps a polymath. I have a wide range of skills. And I'm confident, and as a former director of communications, I hope I can articulate myself well. Uh, and I think those things are, are, are part of the ingredients. So in terms of, I mean, the Princess Trust is a very fine organization, and, and long may it continue. But it works with children and young people over the age of 14. But we know who they are from infancy. And I feel that very, very strongly. And of course, Quorum works from infancy to independence, particularly in relation to the critical issues for children's life chances and what happens in the earliest months and years, and also works in a way that recognizes that change is always possible and that the earlier that uh, change can occur, uh, even if you can shift the trajectory by 1%, then over a lifetime it's a different place. Mm. In addition to which, Quorum is a heritage organization and is the keeper of its archive, which is the longest continuing record of children's social care and a, and a major place in London, which is a place uh, that symbolizes the response of the, of the nation to its most vulnerable children. 
and, and has a major art collection. So if you think about my background in terms of entrepreneurship, education, multifaceted services, heritage, and fundraising, I had to apply to become CEO of Quorum. And of course, it is much more fun to be boss. Yeah. So this is 2006-2007. Did they tap you on the shoulder? What did it look like when you got there? Were you, did you think that actually it needed a lot of work straight away? Or what was your feelings walking into the organisation back then? Uh, yes. Um, well, first of all, the quality of the services were exceptionally high, uh, including the infrastructure and the uh, and the professional services. But it wasn't benefiting enough children for the quality of the infrastructure and capability that it had. So another way of putting it was that it was losing a million pounds a year, and that was not a sustainable position, uh, and not perhaps realizing its full potential. It was a moment for historic renewal, which as you'll have seen through the Polytechnic, the British Museum, and the Princess Trust, is kind of what I do. So therefore, I set out a vision which was accepted by the trustees for a 10-year strategy, which would have uh, three key components, one of which was to regenerate the Coram campus, this marvelous three and a half acres that we have uh, dedicated to children. The second was to increase our reach and impact by diversifying our services through a program of what we call amalgamation, so M&A, to form the Quorum uh, Group. And the third was to establish ourselves as the National Centre of Excellence for Children. So I'm very proud to say that we now have nine organisations in the Quorum Group, uh, the parent body being the Quorum Foundation. Uh, we have regenerated the first three phases of regeneration of the Quorum Campus, and to celebrate the 350th anniversary of the birth of Thomas Coram in 2018, Her Majesty the Queen graced us with her presence to open the building on campus named in her honour as the place where the National Centre of Excellence was housed. Wonderful. And it really is central real estate London. I know, I know I've been there. Um, in terms of your initial plan, when you wrote that, 10-year strategy, how much changed, you're 15 years in now, but how much has changed from that 10 years or did you pretty much, your vision was quite clear and you've delivered it all? Well, of course, we all know that um, leadership isn't that simple. I'm a great believer in the lessons of Ernest Shackleton, which is that he had a very clear goal, but boy, did he have to do a lot of things along the way uh, when the ship sank and the iceberg went the wrong way. And, uh, you know, got back to discover that there had been a, a First World War. Uh, so, you know, 2007, I joined. 2008 was the economic crash. So I hadn't been expecting that. There were, you know, the, the, inevitably, there are things along the journey um, that occur. But you do have to hold true to the goal. And the key task is to make sure that you have the skills and attributes and values that you need from all parts of the organization and the board. And I have been very privileged with the three chairmen that I have served um, and the board. So Shackleton teaches us, really, I suppose, 
uh, about that. And I remember meeting also once a very inspiring leader of the Smithsonian in Washington who said to me, you have two jobs, hire great people and make notes. And of course, I would add a third one. It is my view that the job of leadership is the job of inspiration. Yeah. Has your leadership style changed over the last 15 years? Like, what does Carol Hondon, the boss, look like these days? Well, I suppose older and wiser in some ways. It's very difficult as an individual to change. And I am a driven person and I can be probably a little bit too um, driven. Um, you need to take time to make sure that everybody can see their part and play their part. And so the piece of work most recently engaged in, what have we been doing since 2018? Well, of course, since 2018, we weren't expecting a pandemic. And so the job of leadership has been to ensure that our ship sails the, the, the difficult waters as far as possible in good shape and that we keep all our services going in the interests of the children and families that we serve. So that has been a very different period of leadership and one which has in some ways needed a, a different type of use of skills in communications. So speaking directly to the whole of the organization and engaging the whole of the organization together uh, while different parts of it were experiencing different challenges. And now we are, we have regenerated our strategy. Uh, our vision is, uh, continues to be to create better ch chances for children today, every day, child by child, and to change the odds for children tomorrow by working with, um, sector colleagues and national services. But the new vision, which amplifies that original goal, is to become the institute for the future of children so that children's place in society and worldwide is established and recognized. Wonderful. And when you're not at work uh, and when you're not being a mum, what does Carol Hamden do for relaxation? What do you do to kick back? Well, um, I'm a great lover of visiting local museums and galleries. I do a little bit of pottering with the odd geranium, but I do live my work but in a way that I find enormously rewarding. So, and of course, I am still caring because my eldest son is living in supported living, um, but he is with us uh, at weekends. So he's 31 now, and so that's still quite a lot of care. But really, it's, you know, think about the subject that I studied for my PhD. I go to the theater, I go to uh, museums and galleries, I, and I go swimming. In terms of Sunday night rolls around, Monday mornings and, and view, how do you ground yourself? What inspiration do you draw on for the week? What ways of working? What is the sort of typical Carol Homden approach? Well, that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure I know quite how to answer it. Since lockdown, I have taken to cycling. I do have power assistance, I have to tell you, because the legs are not one, what they once were. <laughs> but I do find it enormously grounding to travel into the office in that way and to have that time to think during the journey about the strategic and journey ahead. The senior management team of the organization, which I have grown and developed 
for this new chapter. That is a source of enormous support, of course, as it must be to each other. And I have a network of wise counsel, and I think that's very important. Um, I hope I could include you in that number, Mark. But, you know, a network of wise counsel to whom one can turn to discuss the road ahead. Because I think the thing that is so important, I often say this to my team, is, well, we've done the budget now and we've got the indications for next year. Now I'm worried about three to five years ahead. So I do very much keep my eyes on the horizon. And I analogy I want to use to describe you would be you were the drummer in a band, now you're the lead singer. But your drummer must have a tough time, right? And I'm, when I say drummer, I'm thinking head of marketing, head of fundraising. But um, is, is there a tendency for you to want to you know, do other people's roles? Or is that the bit of leadership that you've, you've refined and got really good at? Well, that is a key risk. And I, I do feel that it's very difficult, potentially, for our commercial director and our director of communications in particular. But, you know, maybe if I was a social worker, it would be very different, difficult for our lead social worker. But I do work hard at making sure that that isn't the case in terms of micromanagement. But there are some unyielding ingredients. Uh, I do care passionately about the way in which the brand is managed. And I am, of course, the keeper of the brand. And so, you know, that it's important to have that balance between clarity of direction and making sure that that isn't micromanagement. I don't think I ever do micromanage, I hope not, but certainly I do guard against that. And it is really important, I guess, to the teams. I mean, you would know this. It is enormously important and beneficial to a fundraising team to have a chief executive who understands fundraising. Absolutely. So I hope that that is as helpful to them as it is challenging. And similarly, in terms of the communications function, you know, the role of being the key spokesperson of the organization is one I hold as CEO, but it's also one that I have held on behalf of vice chancellors and directors uh, for a long time. And, you know, all I can say is I have the most fantastic team and it is a privilege to serve with them. And before we wrap up, just a quick five questions. One, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. I don't have as much time to read as I would like to. So I'm, I've, what have I been reading um, recently that would be of interest? Well, interestingly, I have been reading about previous pandemics and the economic shocks that they caused um, because the biggest predictor of the future is the past. And indeed, that helped me greatly during the pandemic to see how I could help the organization best flourish. Otherwise, I tend to read thrillers, which are the most uh, comforting uh, type of novel form. So, you know, there's usually a thriller on the go, but I've been reading about social trends and very much inspired most recently by the work of Francis Fukuyama and the book Identity, which seems to me to put a finger on the zeitgeist of our time. And we are, whilst Quorum is a very old organization, the thing about it is that it's in constant renewal. So it's our values 
include credibility, respect, commitment, and professionalism. But perhaps it's surprising to people that one of our key values is dynamic. And in terms of what do I listen to, well, my favorite band is called Molotov Jukebox, and I commend them to you. Wonderful. Well, let's check those guys out. And in terms of the future and where you want to see Quorum be in in, uh, five years, 10 years, you've you've sort of articulated that. But, you know, that question around what role you'll play, uh, you've done 15 years. I'm sure you could do another five. Um, Are you thinking about bringing someone else through? Well, Quorum is a group of organizations, and that is a, a strategic and structural design that ensures that there are multiple leaders in the organization, in the senior management team, not only the functional leaders, but the content leaders. And my job is very much to enable them to lead and get out of the way. But as so I have moved from being chief executive and lead fundraiser of a single focused organization in 2007 to being group chief executive of a quorum group, which is now four times the size and which has um, nine entities. So, so therefore, we have, I believe, and I sincerely hope, a hardwired sustainability and, and, and leadership model. I don't believe in deputies. That's duplication as far as I'm concerned. And I go with uh, very much a flat and dynamic structure. Which uh, So think, think of Quorum. You know, where did I come from? I came from the polytechnic and university sector. If you think of everything that Quorum does across our, our strands, those are modules of activity in programs and schools. And they can be combined to make new solutions to emergent problems and to create signature programs and to combine multidisciplinary expertise. That is where we are headed as a solutions provider and sector leadership to inspire and effect change as the Institute for the Future of Children. And do you feel hopeful for young people in the future? I always feel hopeful for young people. Young people have the power to change their own lives and to change the society for the future. And we have the privilege to help them to be ready to do that. Change is always possible for the better in the lives of the individual, in organizations, and in society. And if it weren't difficult to achieve that, we wouldn't be needed. Carol Hondon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.